I'd like to thank God for keeping us all together. My mom's right there. She's not paying attention. She wasn't, she wasn't paying any attention to me. That brings us brings us up to the good part of the meeting. Um, our speaker, I've had the pleasure of working with for <laughs> almost four years. Um, it's been fun watching him grow. <laughs> I heard him speak about almost four years ago. Um, it wasn't at a meeting; it was in a, a driveway. middle of the afternoon because I didn't know what the hell was wrong with me um, but, but his faith then in Alcoholics Anonymous and his faith and work since uh, personally has carried me through a few times when uh, my own wouldn't do it and it's a, an honor and privilege to introduce from the Big A group in Alexandria, Kentucky Steve W. My name's Steve. I am an alcoholic. I can't tell you how that makes me feel. My sponsor won't let me. I have been sober, um, as best I can re recollect, uh, 19 days and six months in uh, eight years, and uh, that just tickles the shit out of me. I don't know about anybody else, but I'll tell you what, I never thought I'd have eight days staying sober. And for a guy like me who has come from where I've come from, uh, I almost had to pinch myself. I just can't believe that I've been sober that long. And then uh, when I would hear somebody say that they've been sober that long, what would go through my mind was, how in the world could you ever stay sober that long. And what was always followed by the next thought was, why would you ever stay sober that long? <laughs> I don't understand that. Huh? Why would you do that to yourself voluntarily? You, might, um, you realize it's really not that voluntary. You know, it's not that voluntary. I do have a couple of announcements to make. Uh, in case you fall asleep during my lead tonight, I will be chairing, the nuns have asked me to chair the how about sex meeting at the, <laughs> tomorrow morning, so... Uh, come on over. I'll be the one without the habit on, so I'll be easy to pick out. Be one person that doesn't know anything about it, talking to a whole other group of people that don't know anything about it. So it'll be pretty interesting. Is there is there a Mr. Moore out here tonight? Mr. Moore. Uh, if anybody sees Mr. Moore, uh, there's a, a woman up in 702 who keeps hollering for Moore. And so if, you, if you if you see him, would you send him up? I, uh, they took the gong out. That's very nice. I appreciate that. I am a, uh, as best I can tell, I am a uh, member in good standing of uh, the Big A group in Alexander, Kentucky, and nothing, nothing could tickle me more. I am so happy to, uh, to be a member of that group. Um, our motto is, if you've never been there, the sicker they are, the better we like them. And uh, I fit right in the middle. I guarantee, I guarantee you that, and uh, it has been a pleasure to uh, uh, be a sober member of that group and see uh, the joy that has gone on. And I'll tell you what, the, th the thing that gets me about AA is you see this guy come in, and uh, he's, dra he's dragging in, he, he looks bad. He, you know, his wife has just kicked him out, doesn't have a job, no teeth. And uh, he drags himself into a meeting, and, and uh, all we have here is we give him hope and first aid, and we stop the bleeding, and we take him to meetings. We give him some, you know, we give a person who's shaking coffee. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Uh, 
here, have a cup of coffee, you know. It's hot, watch it, woo you know. And uh, give him some of them sweet cookies, you know. That really, as Norm would say, that'd make your teeth itch if, you, uh, if you're on a hangover, get one of them sugar cookies. And, uh, but we bring him in, and uh, it's been my pleasure over the period of time I've been sober to watch a whole bunch of people come into that, that meeting and, and other meetings, not just that meeting, but, and to watch that person who was hollowed out on the inside come walking in and maybe two months, six months, or one year later. They come in, and they're looking a lot better. Got a haircut. We keep telling them, and, and at our meeting, we tell you, if you get spiritual enough, your teeth will grow back. <laughs> and, uh, and they're looking better, and maybe they got their wife with them, and maybe they're dragging a couple kids with them. And our meeting uh, is such a pleasure that... Uh, one of our more self-centered members of our group decided that because she had a baby, we needed uh, babysitting. And uh, as Coe told me many years ago, that uh, God will always take our seeming defects of character and make them work for other people. Uh, she no longer brings her kid there anymore, but we got about 10 or 12 other ones to come on a regular basis. And uh, it is such a pleasure to see that metamorphosis happen at my group. And every once in a while, if you go long enough, You'll get the bonus every once in a while. You will have somebody stand up, take a coin, or give a lead, and they'll say, and I remember that that guy was sitting at the meeting when I came here. And he came up and shook my hand. Now, I don't know about you, but that has happened to me on some rare occasions, and I don't know that there's a better feeling in the world which absolutely amazes me, knowing the kind of person that I am. As self-centered as I am to ever give a thought about anybody else being happy, my thought, um, when I was newly sober, maybe I wasn't newly sober, I was sober a couple years maybe, and I went to a group, it's a fallout group on Friday night, and I'll tell you what happened to me, I went there and a lot of good things happened in my life. I had... Uh, had a sponsor who told me that if you're going to get paid eight hours, you ought to show up for eight hours. That was a concept I was not uh, too familiar with. <laughs> I thought, we started at eight, I thought if I got there at 8.30, I was on time. I don't, I don't know if you had that problem, but that, that's what I thought. But he said, uh, you're, gonna, uh, you're going to get paid for eight hours, you ought to show up for eight hours, and I started to do that. And uh, he said, uh, all the things that you will need, you will find in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he never lied to me. I became a salesman, and, and because I showed up uh, every day and tried as best I could to practice the principles of AA, a lot of good things happened to me. And uh, at this particular time, I was given a lead at this group, and I was getting ready to go to Japan. I had sold enough equipment that I was going to go to Japan. I was one of maybe 25 people in the whole country that was going to go to Japan, all expenses paid. And I thought at that time that if I told you what good things that happened in my life that you would automatically think as I had thought at that time was, what about me? You know, I'd be, I'd be envious if I heard somebody at that time in my life say something good at house. You got a new car? What about my new car? <laughs> Excuse me, I haven't been on a trip. I, maybe I'd like to travel. I wonder why this guy's good. I know I work a better program. He's a jerk. You know, and I, and I would think that. And I'll tell you what happened. I talked to this group and I told them what was going on because my sponsor said, you just tell them the truth. Tell them the good things and the bad and what. You tell them what's going on in your life. And I did. And these people came up to me, and it, it just blew my mind. Have a good time, Steve. Gee, we're so happy that your life's going so well. And this one person, a litany of people, came by me and said that. And it absolutely changed my life. I, the first meeting I ever went to was a Friday night meeting. And, it was, and I, would just, I had just slid out of that meeting to go talk at this meeting. And it so affected me that I knew that night that those people had something that I wanted, and it was just that they were happy. And I know I'm happy when I, I'm happy for other people being happy. When I can sit out in an audience and a guy says, my, my company has decided that I've been doing a good job and they want to give me a raise. They want to promote me. I don't have to sit, I just don't sit there anymore and go, what about me? I look at it and I think, if that has happened to you, that is only a promise that that will happen to me. And it took me about six months to get back to this meeting. I would, uh, would kind of go over, and then I'd go, and I felt, I felt guilty because I'd 
the first group I ever went to was a Friday night group. They took me out of the care unit and took me there and treated me like I was somebody. I don't know that I'm somebody, but I know one thing. I am an ex-nobody, and uh, they treated me real well. And I appreciate that, and I really did feel kind of guilty that I was leaving. So it took me about six months, but I was just driven. I don't know about you all, but I get something in my crawl, and I don't let it go. Do I either get it or kill it? One of the two. You know, I just, the guy said, you know, I never left go of anything that didn't have scratch marks on it. And uh, that is true for me. And when I find something that I want, uh, I usually wind up getting it. It may kill me, but I usually wind up getting it. And uh, I wound up going to that group, and I've been going to it ever since. And, and uh, I met uh, a guy who's become one of my sponsors there. And... Uh, I, le- I learned a lot of things about how to live sober. I just, didn't, I just did not know how to live sober. And I'll tell you what, if I could do anything for anybody, and I don't think that I can. I think, you know, you're, you're an example of A, good or bad. But if I could do something for somebody, I, I would probably reach inside of them and take out that thing inside of us that says, you're the worst person I've ever met. The thing that we, that's inside of us that makes us beat ourselves over and over for not doing things well that we have never done before. Now, I have lived my life working twice as hard to be half as good. It just doesn't make sense. But I wish I could, you know, I see people and, I, and they said, I did this again and I did this again. And I think, I wish I could reach inside you and, and pull that out so you could just say, I did it again and go on. I, I have learned that... Um, these problems that I have in my life, the problems that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with, I still have. I, my sponsor told me many years ago, he said, uh, you know why you have most of your problems at work? I said, no, but I've noticed that. Why? He said, because you spend most of your time at work. You spend... <laughs> Damn, that makes a lot of fun. My God, you're right. You know, I thought about that. I spent, you know, what, eight hours, but you know, a long time at work. <laughs> and... Uh, I was right. You know, it was a matter of mathematics more than anything. And, uh, you know, I just, and I, just didn't, I just didn't know how to live sober. And uh, I found out that, you know, the problems that I brought in here are the very same problems that I have today. And what I have done to kind of quit beating up on myself all the time, and I found it works for me and I found it works for other people. If you keep coming back to the same reoccurring problem like I do, I don't know if you do, but I keep coming back to the same problems. And I think that because I keep coming back to the same problems, I'm not getting any better. Why do you keep having problems at work? Why do you over and over keep having problems in the same area? I don't know. Everybody seems to have problems. They're going to be in about three places. Women, money, or work. And if you're like me, mostly all three all the time. You know. I just, <laughs> <laughs> but I found that the secret for me... Uh, is that to see if I'm getting any better is the time span in between the reoccurrence of that particular problem getting wider is the severity of that problem getting a little bit less every time that I have it do I stay depressed for shorter periods of time than I used to if I can say yes to any one of those three I know that I have I've made some progress I'm getting a little better and uh, that helps me not to beat up me and uh, I don't believe I can be nice enough to me. I really don't. I just think uh, I have a thing inside of me that is just uh, inherent in me that will just automatically kick in. You, how could you be that way? The, the committee inside gets inside my head. Yeah, you're having fun now, but remember when <laughs> you did that? Oh, yeah. Well, quit having so much fun then. You know you really don't deserve it. We're having so damn much fun. And uh, anyway, uh, I did drink, by the way. I, uh, it's, it's true. Uh, it's not just a rumor. I was a, uh, I was a pill head. Uh, I can remember in high school hearing about quaaludes. And uh, I, I, would, I heard what they did. They said it was like being drunk, only you took these pills and it was like being drunk. I like that. It sounded easier and softer to me. My program then was 
uh, find the easiest way to do anything and do whatever you got to do to do it. You know, and uh, I learned that uh, I worked real hard uh, most time. When I, you know, what I learned after I got sober is that I cheated all the way through high school. I knew that, but I cheated all the way through high school. Worked real hard because you got to remember whose homework did I copy? <laughs> Who did I lie to? Which lie did I tell her and him? A lot of work. I realized many years sober, I had a, a kind of a white light thing one day. Said, "Been easier to study." You know, I. Now you're working too hard. You know, I spent my life swimming upstream. You know, but I did drink and uh, I did do pills and I was a pig. I would do anything, anytime. Uh, my favorite drink was yours. If you were buying, <laughs> if you buy, I drink. Um, I don't call myself a drug addict, and I don't, you know, this is just me and my opinion. You know, if you don't like it, it'll be somebody else giving another opinion some other time. But anyway, but my opinion is uh, I'm an alcoholic because I suffer from the disease of alcoholism. What I did as far as pills and booze and to hear somebody uh, talk about, well, you can't talk about pills in the meeting and things like that, I, I, don't, I just don't cotton to that idea. I, some people do, and I, I guess that's, that's all right. I don't know if you... If you said that to Big A, we'd have Joe kill you. I don't, you know, that's, uh, uh, we, just don't, we just don't play that game. You know, I think that, I think about it this way as far as alcoholism. I just think I was an alcoholic. I think I was born that way. Uh, if there is a line, I was born on the other side of it. And uh, I think I come down to shoot, you know, and, they, and I, was, I was an alcoholic coming down to shoot. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I was weird from the beginning. And, uh, this, and these pills were just a, uh, just a way of, you know, my problem what makes me an alcoholic has very little to do with alcoholism. Uh, the thing is, why do I drink over and over and over again? Why do I not feel comfortable without drinking or doing pills? And uh, this, this, the drug addict thing, I, I think it's all well and good. I, I think uh, that uh, I could put booze in my mom for a year and get her uh, hooked on booze, but I never could make her an alcoholic. She would detox. You know, I'd have to force it down her first because my mom's one of these drinkers. I think I've had enough, she'd say. I'm starting to get dizzy. And I tried to explain to her, if you just keep drinking, you shoot right through that dizzy spell and you are rocketed into a fourth dimension that you didn't know existed. My mom has little faith. She has never, she's never done it. I just, she just, she can't hang. I don't, you know, I don't know why. And I also think that I could uh, make my mom addicted to drugs. I could addict her to drugs, but I can never make her an alcoholic. And uh, so I think my problem centers in the mind, um, in my mind. And uh, I know that I'm an alcoholic and... Uh, the first, you know, the funny thing is, the, the thing I look at in people, uh, and I'm always looking at people to be alcoholic, I think half the world I meet alcoholic. You know, I, uh, I, I deal with the public every day, and I see a lot of alcoholics, and I rarely ever see them drink. And I can just tell by the way they act, they're one of us. You know what I mean? <laughs> they want the best deal in the world. They want to feel like they've gotten over on everybody. And I know that feeling. I know that, that feeling of power, and I just love them. I tell you, when they come in my store, they are the easiest people to sell tractors to I've ever met. I'll tell you. We alcoholics are saps, because you tell us a few good things we want to hear, and we'll buy anything. I mean, that's the truth. But I was doing pills in high school, and uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Uh, I remember hearing about Quaaludes. I thought, go get me some of them. I don't know where and when, but when the opportunity presents itself, and I know that it will, I'm going to take full advantage of it. We were in Harry Steffen's van one night. A guy named Jeff, whose wife is now on the program, said he had some Quaaludes, and he produced these little white pills that had 714. And, uh, yeah, I, I tell you what, I get excited talking about it. You know, it just <laughs> makes my knees quiver. Uh, I'm like, I think we ought to, like, with pills, you know, we all do like Johnny does. You know, you from Burbank, yay. I think somebody says, well, I did Quaaludes. We all just stand up. Yay, I did that, you know, you know. Vodka, yay. But I just want to do that. You know, somebody says, well, I was a Quaalude addict. <laughs> yay, I'm one. I'm one. And uh, once I started doing them, I didn't do them every day from then on or anything like that. 
just did them every chance I got. You know, I just, I just, thank you. I just, I never could get enough. And uh, that was my mainstay. Quaaludes, I did everything else, and, and I, would, uh, I would drink. But I, I, I opened up the local Quaalude franchise in Alexandria, and uh, I had this plan. I had a plan. It was a good plan. You buy 100 Quaaludes. Back then, it was 150 bucks. You sell 50 of them for $3 a piece. I swear that comes up to $150. And I swear you would get, if that were true, you would get 50 quaaludes for free. I always lost money. <laughs> Took me years to make amends to my dope dealer when I came into the program. And uh, it just never did. You know, because a guy like me, he does two, and somebody calls him on the phone, right? They say, Steve, you got any quaaludes? No. <laughs> Sounds like you got some. I ate the last one. I may have 97 left out of that 100. But you never know, do you? You never really know when you may need them. You may not sleep that night. My, my greatest fear, I may not sleep tonight. And uh, I didn't. I passed out every night. Every night. Uh, that was my ritual. I'd sit there on the floor in what I, would, what I call the alcoholic base camp. That's a pillow, uh, a pot pan, uh, you know, a brownie pan to sift the seeds out of your pot. Maybe a beer, a little libation of some sort or another there on the uh, table. And I just found out it was a lot easier to lay on the floor than... I was not a couch potato. I'm more of a, a floor tater. And uh, I just found that two things could happen on a couch. One, you burn something. And I don't have to tell you what happens then. She comes down and shows you where you burn something. And you didn't mean it. But there ain't a hell of a lot you can do about to fix it once it's burned. And I had caught that, I had caught that heat a few times, so I just, you know, and then, you know, the other thing is you can roll off the couch, hit your head on the coffee table, and bruises are a way of life for a quaalude addict. I don't, you know, I, I was like, you know, if you woke up and didn't have something sore, you probably didn't have a good time. You know, I just, it was probably a boring night. <clears throat> but, um, so I was a floor potato. And I'll tell you, I had a spiritual awakening about two years before I got sober. I, they put cable on our road. And uh, I thought, God lives. It was the only thing, I, you know, my biggest fear in the world, I'll never sleep. I just, I never watched cable pass 12, because I, every, I passed out every night, but the security of knowing it was on was all I needed. You know, I just, it just, it gave me great comfort, you know, and just to know if I wake up, I won't have to listen to them, you know. And, the, you know, if the committee's in session, I can watch a movie. You know, and it was a great solace to me. And luckily, I never had to use it, and I appreciate that. But um, what happened to me is, is my drinking just progressed. And when I got out of high school, I basically did the same thing out of high school that I did in high school. I uh, borrowed money all week. And when payday came, uh, I paid off all the people that I borrowed because you want to keep the franchise open because you know you're probably going to have to pay them, borrow from them again next week. And uh, whatever money I had left over, I would uh, drink and drug on for that weekend. And I'd wake up on Monday, and I would be broke. And I was a thief. I, I can remember, uh, I was a thief long before I ever started drinking. I mean, that, that was just, I was just a thief. You know, that's just the way I was. I didn't have anything to do with drinking, per se. I might have to do something with the alcoholic mentality, but it didn't have anything to do with drinking. What happened to me, I remember being in like the first or second grade, and I'd steal money from my dad to buy Reese cups to give to the other kids. <laughs> you know, I was just the, the kind of stuff, I, you know, I spent a lifetime buying things I didn't need with money I didn't have to impress people I didn't like. And uh, I, that, was, that was my life. And, uh, and it started with Reese Cups, and that's really where it all began for me. One day I was crowning the Blessed Virgin on May Day because I had got the highest test, you know, I got the highest test of my religious class in first grade. And then... I was stealing Reese cups not long after that. You know, I, I just went all to hell in a real short period of time. I don't, when I was in the sixth grade, I thought, I'll be a priest. And uh, I thought, nah, I'll never make it. You know, I just knew I'd, they just wouldn't take people like me. I had already stolen so many Reese cups, and I, I knew I was far beyond uh, help. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I kind of, 
I went to a Catholic school, and uh, I believe they teach a lot of good things. I just believe guys like me have their ears on backwards. You know, they probably said, um, you, you do this way of life, and your life will get better. And what I heard was backwards. You do that, you're going to hell. And, you know, what happened to me is, is by the time I found out what the commandments were, I'd already broke about seven of them. So I just stayed with the ones I liked, you know, and said to hell whether I'm going to hell anyway. So that, uh, I was what I would call a chicken shit atheist. That's somebody who hopes there's not a God, but ain't got the, ain't got the wherewithal to say it. You know, I, he may be listening in case there is one, and I hope there isn't. Because if there is, there is a price to be paid, and I ain't never going to have enough to pay it. And I really thought that. I thought that uh, I'll probably have about 400,000 years of purgatory, and then I was going to hell. So you might as well enjoy yourself all you can while you're here. So that was my mission. And uh, as I said, when I got out of high school, I just kept drinking the same way I was drinking. And I kept doing the same way I was doing. I had this little house. I rented it was $75 a month. Could never pay the rent. Take in a border and couldn't pay the rent. And I just... I don't know what I spent on. I had a bottle of ketchup, mustard, and a bottle of wine in my refrigerator. That was all I had. And uh, I never could pay the rent. And then uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, she took me in, and, and I appreciate that because I had never made it on my own. And my mom said to me that these words. She said, I said, well, I'll tell you what happened. What preceded this was I was going out with this girl, and my mom and dad didn't like her. And she called one morning, and... Uh, my dad said, if that bitch ever calls again, uh, I'm going to have her arrested. I said, you know, I don't know what they were upset about. I was 18 and she was 36, but, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't see any problem with that. And uh, as soon as he said that, I thought, I'm leaving. You know, and that's my answer to everything. I'll show you I'll hurt me. And uh, so I moved out. And my mom said these words to me. Uh, that door swings one way. You leave, you ain't never coming back. I'd have died before I, before I came back. The kind of pride that I had, I would have absolutely died before I ever went back and said, Mom, would you please let me back in? She probably would have, but I just couldn't do it. So I, you know, I took that pride and I moved out and I couldn't make it too well on my own. And I moved in with Laura and her roommate. We were kind of two girls and a guy, kind of a threes company deal. And uh, she didn't stay long. She couldn't take me, I guess. And, uh, and uh, she moved out. And my, my drinking just progressed on a pretty regular basis. It was sometimes eventful, uh, sometimes fun, uh, but very constant. I cannot remember uh, ever having a time when I didn't drink. Maybe two times when I remember. One, I had hepatitis and couldn't drink. Because every time I drank, I'd puke, you know. And, uh, and then the other time, uh, I was in the Transcendental Meditation, and they said, uh, you know, you, you can't drink for three weeks or three months or whatever they said. And I thought sober was just smoking pot. You know, I was never, like, sober. I was just, you know, not drinking or not doing quaaludes, I thought, was sober. And I continued upon, uh, upon that path and never wanted to stop drinking. I never... If I, if I start or stopped drinking, it was because somebody uh, badgered me into it. It was never my idea. And uh, what happened to me is, uh, in rapid succession, in the last year of my drinking, I had some problems. I'd gotten arrested for uh, DUI. I don't know about you all, but when I, I just like to go to the, like the con convenience store at 2.30 in the morning to get something when I'm drunk. I don't know why. I like to do that. I like to call people. Long distance, if, if possible, if they'll talk to me. Just like, I get phonitis when I drink. You know, I just want to call. How you doing? Don't ever call me at 2 o'clock in the morning. I always had people, you know, that remorse that you feel when people come up to you the next day. Don't you ever call me. You woke up my kids and my wife doesn't appreciate you trying to buy quaaludes from her. She didn't even know I had any and you blew the cover and I'll kill you if you ever do it again. I'm sorry. You know. <laughs> Jerk. And, uh, and I just continued upon that path. But anyway, I got, what happened to me is I, I went out to the convenience store one night and, and got, a, got arrested on the, way, on the way back. And man, they tore my car, car all apart. And I can barely remember what happened. All I remember is I couldn't get my license out of my wallet. I, was so dr I wasn't drunk. I was pilled up. And I'm trying to get the, the license out. And the guy said, man. And I just took a breathalyzer and blew nothing. 
The guy says, what the hell's the matter with you? And I said, uh, I have back problems. He said, son, I believe you've over-medicated. And uh, there's a law against that in Kentucky. They arrested me. They let me go to my wife who came up and get me, and she was about half as hammered as I was. I don't know why they, they let her drive me home. They should have took me home and somebody's safe. You know, I, girl could have killed me. I got out of that. I told my lawyer who was a drunk, I said, he says, $200. I said, you get me out of this, I'll give you $300. He did, and I did. And I went up going to school. And uh, maybe it was, I don't know, I have a hard time. You know, it blows my mind to hear somebody get up and give a lead and say it happened on March 2nd, 1981. No, it was March 3rd, 19... And I think, how the hell do you know? I, where, you know how, would you write all that stuff down? Because everything in my mind's a blur. You know, there was age six. I remember crowning the Blessed Virgin. I got arrested for your DUI. Everything in between is just like a blur. I don't know how they... I just find that amazing that they can remember all that. Because, I, you know, I just don't remember. And uh, I thank God for that a lot of times. I, you know, it's probably a blessing. And uh, what happened to me is I was playing uh, volleyball in this league in Fort Thomas, and we had already lost two games. And I, th- I had some quaaludes with me, and I, and I always had a plan, and my plan was I'll take these three quaaludes. By the time the second game is, is over, I'll be starting to get a little buzzed, and I'm only you know, a few miles from home, and I'll just go right home. Well, I don't know how we did it, but we won the game, and we had to go into a third game. And, of course, by the end of the third game, my, my legs were like rubber, you know, and I, and I drove home, and I, I must have dropped the cigarette on the floor, and uh, all I know is I, I hit a sewer lid that was sticking out of the ground this far. <laughs> Boom! And uh, hit my head, and, and the car like went up like an accordion. Five gallon of kerosene I'm carrying around the back. This was when kerosene heaters were a big thing. It busted. There's kerosene all over the place. I'm drunk. The guy comes up. Will you pull me out of the ditch? He pulls me out of the ditch. I get in the car, drive it home. I don't, you know, the wheels are all flat and everything. If you're an alky, you don't care about that. Just get in it, ignore it, it'll go away, you know. Anything, anything you don't like in your life, ignore it, it'll go away. My car went away the next day. Guy come and hauled it away, and we never saw it again. It was totaled, and uh, I never thought anything about it. And that was right before I, you know, this, I just got into this series of bad breaks, and uh, I wrecked my car. And I didn't think about that. I had been wrecking cars for years. I had a long history of wrecking cars. And uh, that didn't bother me too much. And then on a Tuesday, what had happened to me, uh, I was doing the same thing I did every night. I passed out. And then I, got, I must have got up this night, and uh, I tried to go upstairs to our bedroom. And I tumbled. Obviously, this is my story. If you want to know the real story, you'll have to talk to my wife. But this is as I remember it was told to me. Um, that I tumbled downstairs and she found me laying in the foyer and thought I was dead and she called uh, the fire department, the life squad. They came over. Well, I don't know what's going on. I wake up next morning. I got suction cups on me, you know, on my chest and on my stomach. Now, where did I go last night? I don't know that I've ever been anywhere. The suction cups were a requirement for getting in. And I don't believe I ever knew anything that her and I had done that required suction cups. I was willing to learn. I asked her what... I asked her what had happened the night before, and she informed me. You were drunk. I thought you died. The life squad come over. You woke up, told them to get the hell out. And I thought, so she left the suction cups on for effect, you know. I was, she overreacted. I'll forgive her. And uh, so I tried to go on, but she was mad. And so uh, that was on Tuesday. And so on a Saturday, I thought, it's time to, you know, to make amends. I'm gonna, and the guy next door to me helped me with this thing. He, he said, Steve, uh, come on over for St. Patrick's Day. I'm tending bar at Reflections. Come on over. The drinks are on me. Well, I'm there. <laughs> you know, he says, you know, the magic words. I'm buying. So uh, we went over, and we had a hell of a good time, as I remember. We danced and had a real good time. And at this point in my life, I could not drink enough vodka to get in trouble. I just couldn't get drunk enough. I mean, my tolerance was such that I could drink vodka all night and never really get in trouble. And I had left the Quaaludes at home because I thought I don't really want to get in trouble. And so, you know, we had a great time. Man, I was back in. I knew that things were cool. You know, I was back in the, you know, in the big bed and I was happy about that. And I got home. I did what I always did. I, you know, I got out there in the base camp, you know, and I fired up a joint and a cigarette. And cigarettes always taste better when you're smoking pot, don't they? Uh, did anybody else find that out? You know, and 
And uh, that, and I'll tell you what, if you ever did Delatas or any kind of Perkadans or anything? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cigarettes taste great when you're doing this, don't they? I would sit around and I'd have a fingernail brush. And your nose itches when you do them, you know, pain pills. I just sit around, scratching my nose with a fingernail brush. I come to work in the middle of the winter. Um, I was a weird kind of guy. I come to work in the middle of the winter with a nose that looked like it had been sunburned. And what happened is it would peel from me rubbing it all the time. And then I would go to work in the summer with long sleeves on when it was, you know, 95 degrees out to cover up the needle marks on my arm. And as I would get that way, I, you know, I'd get high on quaaludes and I'd start you know, poking myself like a pin cushion. You know, I'd be, <laughs> I'd, my wife would have to hide her paragoric. I, there, there'd be me. I'd be looking for a paragoric. I'm going to put it in the needle and I'm going to shove it in my arm. I, it never did do anything for me, but I just like doing it. You know, I just, that and calling people and driving to the convenience store. That was my thing. So I'm in my alcoholic base camp. I'm doing my thing. Got my pillow there, cable. I'm ready. VCR. I've now acquired a VCR. I bought that the year before. I paid $400 for it. I bought it for my family. I, it took me a year to pay it off. And, uh, you know, I just thought, you know, when an alcoholic does, he'll buy a real nice gift for his family. And, uh, you know, as kind of a, sorry for being an asshole all year, here's a VCR. And they don't let him touch it, right? <laughs> don't, don't mess with that. I've got it set. I was, a bene- I was really a benevolent sort. And uh, so I'm doing the same thing. You know, I'm there, I'm, I'm in the base camp, you know, and I'm smoking a cigarette, got a joint, you know, I'm, I did some quaaludes, and I'm feeling good. And, and uh, I, I just, a little faux pas, I, I fell asleep with that cigarette in my hand, and I lit the pillow on fire. And uh, I must have felt the heat, because I, I got up and went to bed. And um, next thing I know, fire department's back, same guys, different hats. Guy leaning over, lo, leaning over me says, uh, uh, Mr. Wall, uh, you better get up. Your house is on fire. And, of course, I thought, well, what asshole set my house on fire? You know, I, they informed me that it was me. And uh, as I got up out of the bed, I looked over, and I had a brand-new shirt I had only worn one time. My brother brought it back from Florida. It was a golf shirt. I looked over. Not, not only had I set the pillow on fire, but the pillow had set my shirt on fire. And as I looked over, it was laying there with just kind of a whiff of smoke coming off of it and a smoldering rubble, uh, nothing left. And I walked past a big mirror that we had there on the chest drawers, and I looked back, and all the hair had burned off the top of my head. Because when I had taken the shirt off, when it was on fire, it just kind of probably had a lot of hairspray up there, you know. Woof, you know, and it just, I walked by. And I go downstairs, and there's all the furniture out in the front yard. I don't think, I'm an alcoholic, I don't think, well, I hope nobody died in this thing. You know, I wonder if my wife's okay. I wonder if the kid's okay. Where's the dog? I think, geez, I hope the neighbors don't find out. You know, <laughs> it seemed to me we had this little fire. And he brought like a 40-foot pumper, big ladder crew on it, two of them, and sirens were going, and speakers were going back and forth. And I thought, boy, I hope the neighbors don't go. You know, and then that is, that is idiotic for an alcoholic. We're always the last one to get the card in the mail, aren't we? Because I tell you what, I got out of treatment not long after that. And uh, I went to my neighbor and said, you know, I'm an alcoholic, and uh, I take one drink, I never know what I'm going to do. I have a physical compulsion. He said, I don't know about that, but he said, uh, you're going to quit parking your car in our yard. I said, well, I, I don't know. But uh, I did. I went into treatment. I'll tell you, the series of events just went on and on. Set the house on fire. My mom comes out. She finds out I'm a pillhead. My mom never knew I was a pillhead. She was happy knowing I was just goofy. You know? <laughs> she could live with that. You know, they would say things like, you know how they talk about you like you're not there? You know, they go, well, you know how he is. You know? You know? Now, what's that noise in the back? Oh, that's Steve, the alcoholic. He's flapping around on his ankles again. And, uh, you know, everybody's got one of us. And, you know, and I, in the, my family treatment for alcoholism is, you know, keep him moving. And uh, keep your head buried in the sand. Don't say anything. Ignore it. It'll go away. And uh, my mom found out this night uh, that I was doing pills. This crushed me. This was like the weight of the world coming down on me. My mom, I was horrified that my mom found out that I was a pillhead. I, I, too, did not mind her thinking that I was an absolute lunatic. But I just didn't want her to know I was a pillhead. 
I just didn't understand what I had. I didn't know what, what the deal was. And uh, she found out and she said, I'll never talk to you again. I don't want to have anything to do with you. We're going on vacation, you know. And I didn't, I wasn't mad at her. I, I just, I thought, well, you know, if I could get away from me, I would too. I, you know, I, and I woke up the next day mortified. My wife was gone. The kid was gone. The dog was gone. And I thought the same thing. I thought, I don't blame you one bit. I'd get the hell out if I could. And uh, I, I had no hard feelings. I just thought, well, everybody's left. And I tried to smoke a joint, and I couldn't smoke a joint. And I had some beer, and I, I just really didn't feel like that would help. I had a moment of clarity where, in my mind, I thought, it ain't never going to get any better. This shit is going to go on and on and on. And no, just because you change from quaaludes to beer or you quit smoking pot, or you only do Valiums in the daytime, it's not going to get any better. It's going to come out of, the, out of the junk heap just like it always does, and it's going to go right back down the shitter just like it has every time. And I never thought that thought before. That was the first time I ever looked at my life and thought, it's not going to get any better. That's what, to me, alcoholism is all about. That's what our book talks about, alcoholic insanity. I thought alcoholic insanity is mowing your grass at 4 o'clock in the morning with a flashlight. You know? <laughs> And I, I thought, that's drunken behavior. If you can keep my mom on her feet long enough and put enough drinks in her, she'll do something goofy. Now, she just can't hang in there, but you know, if you could make her do it, she would do something goofy, and that's just, alcohol. That's, that's just drunken behavior. Alcoholic behavior is doing all those things and waking up and telling yourself the next time it's going to be different. And I knew this day it was not going to be different. And the sad fact was I thought I was going to die early. And I knew that day, you're going to die. It's going to take a long time. It's going to be slow, one pace at a time and that I could not contend with I could contend with dying dying I don't believe you can scare an alcoholic by dying I hear people telling me you keep doing that you're going to die and I know the alcoholic if he's like me will say when <laughs> you keep promising I ain't died yet because that don't scare us if I die the pain will be over I didn't even know what pain I had I didn't know what I didn't know nothing all I knew is this was going to go on and I was, at, I was at a hopeless state. I just didn't know what to do or who to turn to. And my brother called me and said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. He said, why don't you call Father Paul? And Father Paul was my, we call him, we said he was my uncle. He's actually my cousin. And he had, we, all I knew is he had worked at Batesville. And I thought, you know, he had worked with the poor, lowly alcoholic. And maybe he might be able to help me. And I called him. He was not home. I left a message. He called me back. He said, uh, we alcoholics. And that just blew my mind. And I thought, did I hear him right? And he started talking like he was an alcoholic. I wanted to tell him, you're a priest for God's sake. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> I listened. And I told him the absolute truth so far as I knew it that day. I told him everything I was doing and what was going on in my life. He said, you ought to go in for treatment. I said, where? He told me where. And I did. I called up. I said, can I come in? They said, yes, bring PJs, bring a brush, bring this, bring that. I said, can I just come in? They said, yes. And I went over and I went in. I wasn't, I wasn't even scared when I went. I was straight and I wasn't even scared. And uh, they put me on the road to recovery because a guy like me, I, if I saw an Alcoholics Anonymous commercial on television, I would have thought, damn, that's nice for people that need it. I would have never thought I was an alcoholic. I was sober a long time and never thought I was an alcoholic. I was a drug addict. Because I saw alcoholism as what you did, not what you were. And uh, so I went into treatment, and uh, I, by uh, sheer luck, fell into a group of people who work AA uh, out of the book. I think the people that I fell into, their most important thing was working with other people and taking the steps. And uh, I hung around for about a year trying it my own way. I did the very best I can on self-will. Uh, I got so miserable. I was uh, 13 months sober, and I saw Tony one day at Oak Street, and I ran up to him, and I said, I must talk to you right now, because if I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I, again, sat down with him and told him exactly what was going on because I was so hopeless and desperate. I just didn't give a shit. And he said to me, you're packing all that garbage around. All you need to do is work the fourth and fifth step. The thought never crossed my mind that I'll do anything else. He showed me how to do it. I did it, and I worked the fourth step 
on the date that he gave me. My life, uh, as I look back on it, is almost broke up into three facets. There was drinking, there was sober for a year doing it my way, and then I think I finally gave up, and I started to do it the AA way, the way that people were doing it in front of me. If you get too confused in AA and you don't understand what we're talking about, because Lord knows I do, sometimes I just look around, it just blows my mind, you know, because we, I think we have the language of the bumper sticker, don't we? You know what I mean? How you doing? I ain't doing worth the shit. Well, live and let live, you know. Well, you're powerless. Uh, you know. Anybody put a sentence together around here? You know, I, I like to talk to somebody if they could. And uh, I, um, I told him what you know what was going on, and I think God put people puts people in your life just at the right time. I think when the student is ready, the teacher surely does appear. If you have the willingness and the absolute um, desperation in your life to get down on your knees and ask for help, you better be ready. Because it's going to happen, whether you want it to or not. It's going to happen, and it did for me. I was so miserable that I, I, I got so desperate that I told somebody again the whole truth. And uh, AA took me by the hand, showed me exactly what to do. And as I said, if you get too confused... And you can't read out of that book. Like I had a lot of trouble. I could read that book. I could not understand it. It had to be deciphered for me. And I think that that's probably by God's design. Had I been able to read that book and understand it all by myself, I'd have never asked for help. If they had AA on cable TV, you'd have a different speaker here tonight. I'd, I'd, I'd be coming to you live from the, you know, from the alcoholic base camp. You know, I, I know how I am. I know. Uh, I read the book every day. Um, I could not quote you hardly a page. I think that also is by design. I think if I knew what page everything was on, I would beat people to death with it. I know how I am. I would flog you. Page 479. You ought to know that. Did you try this? And I don't remember any of that. And I've given up trying. Uh, I just figured uh, there's no reason to remember all that uh, it's written down. I, I got five big books, every version. And what, what has happened to me, if you read that book long enough and you try to do what it says, you may not be able to quote what's in it, but it will come out in your life. You will not be able to stop it. You will have answers to problems. You will have answers and never know what the questions were. It will just happen. I don't know how it happens. Not exactly. I know that they told me to do certain things. Because of the desperation in my life, I did certain things. Uh, I think pain is truly the touchstone to all spiritual progress. Um, I know I'm getting late, so I'll, I'll tell you what happened in the last couple of years of my sobriety, and then I'll shut up and sit down. I uh, was about six years sober. Our business was about ready to go broke. Um, and, a, and a guy just... And, I said to my brother one day, I said, you know this business over here on the east side of town? They keep jacking around in the business we're in, and they got a lot of money. I don't even know why they fool with that business. One day, they ought to just come over here and sell it to us. About a year later, a guy pulls in our parking lot, that guy that owned the business, and came in and said, we want you guys to buy our business. Well, we don't have any money. We're about broke. They said, that's all right. We'll finance you. And my brother just about died at that, at that point. And he was, uh, had been sick for a real long time. He, uh, he's, he's one of us. And uh, he, he's working on getting here. And uh, he about died. And I, and I was making a decision. I thought, well, you know, what the hell? If you got one business going broke, what difference does it make if two of them go broke? You know, so why, why not take a crapshoot? And so we did. And what happened to me is I went over and for whatever reason, I don't even know why it was decided that I was going to go over and, and run this place. And I did. I look back on now, I think, what kind of person do you think you are that you could leave a business where you, the only business you ever worked in, and go across the river, 25 miles, and run a business? And I'll tell you what, I, I, I walked with my sponsor through that whole thing, and the way I make decisions, I never try to figure out why I should do something. I can guarantee you that if I want to do something, I can have a hundred reasons why I'm going to do it. No problem. It comes to me automatically. I can tell you why I'm going to do this, boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. I try to do it from a different standpoint. There's any reason why I shouldn't. 
And I could not figure out a good reason why I should not do this, so I did it. And what happened to me at that time, I was also uh, uh, the intergroup uh, president, chairman, and I'd taken on this new business, and uh, I just didn't know. I wasn't doing anything wrong, but I got into something that was way over my head, and I didn't know it, and I didn't even know how to ask for help. How do you know? You know, it's like trying to ask for help when you're drinking, when you know that drinking's not the problem, so what do you ask for help for? And I didn't know what my problems were. I didn't know how to ask for help, and if I, do, I knew how, I wouldn't even know what to ask them about. So I did the best I could, and I struggled along, and we did all right. If you looked at my life, you would have said things are better than they've ever been. And from a lot of standpoints, they probably were, but emotionally, I went into about a six-month depression. And uh, I fought it on a daily basis. I woke up every morning, and it seemed like my brain woke up a half an hour before I did. And it said, don't get out of bed. Don't go to work. Who do you think you are? You're weighing over your head. And I'll tell you, you, you know you're in trouble when you say things to yourself like, if I don't do it, it won't get done. Followed by, I'm the only person who could do it. If you said that to yourself, um, you may be in trouble. <laughs> I know I was. Because I thought it was so important that things could not get done without me and I did not know how to ask for help, nor would I let anybody help me. I guess it had a lot to do with pride. And I don't really try to figure out exactly what happened at that period. Uh, I know it lasted for about six months. At that point in my life, I found that I had to lean on my wife for the first time in my life. And I hated it. I'd, I was never used sober to leaning on anybody. I had a sponsor that would not allow me to lean on him. He said, we don't lean on people and he would not allow me to lean on him. But I had to lean on my wife because she was the only person I had. And she had to come to my rescue and she had to help me. And she had to do some things for me that I did not want done. She finally said to me, will you please let me help you? And I did. And uh, I moved through that depression. I'll tell you what, if you've been through that, um, you know that you don't even want to talk about it. Because you're afraid if you do talk about it, it will come back. And by the time you're out of it, you pro and you realize you're out of it, you've probably been out of it for quite some time. But you, you know, I'll tell you what. Uh, I never want to change anything that has happened to me, good or bad, sober. Um, I think God takes those things, and he makes them work for us. And I know that for me, when I came through that, I was a much different person than I'd ever been before. I'd tell you what, before that, if I was sitting in a meeting, and a guy stood up and said he was having some kind of problems, I automatically had the answer. Guy sitting in a meeting, Russell Street, got a problem with this. The answers would just come to me. Probably ought to work a four-step. Got to read the book. Got to work with newcomers. Always had an answer. After I came through that, I moved out from the answers more into a cheerleading mode. Guy says, I've been depressed. I'm, I know you can make it. I know how you feel. I don't know what the problem is. But hang in there. I know you can get through it. I did. I was more of a cheerleader. And I became a hell of a lot more compassionate than I had ever been in my life. And I had a hell of a lot less answers. And uh, I liked that about me. I liked that change. And uh, I would then talk to people who I would not normally talk to. If you're depressed, you will grab on and talk to people that you wouldn't even have said hi to when you're feeling good. And I learned a lot about that. I thought, you're not the same person depressed that you are happy. And it gives you a lot of food for thought. And I didn't talk about that for a long time. I still don't like talking about it that much. But I'll tell you what happened to me is when I hear a guy sober longer than me, a guy that, that uh, I like, and he talks about some of the rough times he goes through, I don't think, geez, it's terrible that guy went through those rough spots. I think, well, if he went through it and he made it, maybe when I'm in it, I can make it. I get hope out of it. I really don't, I really don't get depressed over people getting unhappy. And... Uh, when I came through that, I was a much different person. And I prayed about this. Work. I knew it was work-related, the problems that I had. And I prayed about it every day. God, I am willing to do whatever, whatever you want me to do. And I don't give a shit what it is. And my God doesn't care how I talk. Because I've, I've had to straighten him out on a few occasions. I usually, I usually do it in a rather loud voice in my car. I think, here's what I think about myself. Well, 
if you're such an understanding God, let, let's just try this one on for size. I think I've been getting screwed. You know, and I'll give him a litany of things that bother me, and I'll give them to him in just the nastiest words I can say, and I say, if you're really God, let's see what you do. And I'm still here, so, I, you know, so I can, I'm only proof that uh, he doesn't care how I talk. And uh, so what happened to me is I, as I moved through that, and I, said, and, I, and I tried to talk about it on some occasions, and I did get to the point where people wouldn't come up to me and say, how you doing? I'd say, I'm doing shitty. They say, what's the matter? Damned if I know. And uh, I kept praying about it every day. And when you're in that, I'm telling you, you can pray about it every day, and the answers come real slow. It probably takes you a long time to get into that kind of depression, and it takes you a long time to get out, and it comes out very slow. That's the way it was for me. But I prayed about it every day, and I thought, well, God, if you want me to stay where I'm at, I will stay there. Well, what happened to me? It's been a very interesting year this year for me. Um, if you looked at my life, you would think it was a horrible year. I think it's very paradoxical in AA that we would look at people, you all wouldn't look at it this way, but the outside world would look at, look at my life and say, had a terrible year, haven't you? And they would look at my life when I was in depression and think, things could never be better. New business, making more money than you ever made. You know, got a new car, got all that shit. And look at you, you're doing fine. And they go, Why do I feel this way? Uh, what happened this year, uh, this series of events uh, in uh, like November, they just came and repossessed our one store, our original store. They just came, took all the stuff, and took it away. And they called me and said, we're coming to get your stuff. And I said, well, I paid my bills. Why are you going to come get my stuff? Well, you're part of the other store. We've got to come and get it. And I said, well, you know, I said, you can do that, but you're going to put me out of business. And, and uh, uh, I said, you know, I've, I've tried to do everything I've said I can do, and, and if you'll work with me, I'll do something. And you know what they did? They took all the stuff from one store and put it in my other store. And, and the company went to their lawyers and had them draw up a corporation in my name so that I wouldn't have to go out of business. And uh, I, I look back on now, I think, I would have never trusted anybody. That and, the only, and I had not one red cent that I could have paid for anything. And I had $150,000 worth of merchandise. I could have sold it all and took the 150000 filed bankruptcy, and boom. And those guys, I don't know what it is. All I can say is it's what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for a guy like me. They trusted me enough to come out and, for my signature, give me that kind of equipment because I said I'd pay them. And my sponsor taught me, you tell somebody you're going to do something, you do it. That's all. There's nothing real complicated about it. And so they put all that stuff in there. And eventually the business did go broke. And eventually the business that I ran had to go broke because we were part of that company and we could not separate. And uh, so this last year, uh, just to look over in a summary, in January we were, uh, my wife and I were in California and we called home and our dog died. And I'll tell you what. If you don't have a dog, you probably don't understand, but if you do, that's probably all I need to say. This dog had lived with us for 10 years through good times and bad. When my wife and I could not love each other, this was the thing we loved together. And uh, he was just a... Flash was a great dog. And I loved him. And he died. And uh, in uh, April, my sponsor died. Uh, matter of fact, was it in March? It was in March because it was the Sunday before my anniversary dinner. Uh, my mom always fixed anniversaries for all the guys I sponsor and all the guys that sponsor me. And uh, he died and he didn't make it. And of course my business went broke. And uh, had to file bankruptcy. Uh, have recently filed bankruptcy. And if you looked at, at my life, you would say, geez, you've had a terrible year. And let me tell you, I've had the best year of my life. This has absolutely been the most enjoyable year of my life. I figured that uh, I prayed in that depression to God, I don't care what you do with this business. You do whatever you want to do, and I will do whatever you want me to do. And I figured this is what he wanted me to do. What happened was this business that we had bought from these people, um, I went and told them, I said, we're going bankrupt. We're not going to be able to pay you. I don't know what you want to do, but you need to do something because eventually we're going to file bankruptcy and you need to take some action before this all happens. And they said, fine. They said, uh, We'll take it back, no problem. We'll write up all the papers. All you have to do is sign them, and we'll let you go of the of the all the uh, debt, and it'll be okay. Would you like to come and work for us? And I said, I don't know. I'm burned out. I really, I have had all this shit I can stand. I said, you, if you want me to, you call me and let me know. And I went and talked to my sponsor, and I prayed about. It. I said, God, whatever you want me to do. Uh, this is the way I, I talk to guys. Whatever you want me to do, you hit me with a two by four, and give me the message. And I will do whatever it is you want me to do. And two days later, they called me. 
and said, could you come in and see us? And I told all my guys, they called. They want to see me. Well, they're probably going to hire you. They were all real happy. Yeah, probably are. And I was not too happy about it. I said, I made a deal with God, and I will, I will follow through on that deal. If he wants me to be here, this is where I will be. And I went down, and I talked to my sponsor. He said, I said, what should I do about money? And he said, you go down and tell them what you want, and if they offer you anything, tell them you'll be willing to take it. <laughs> I said, okay. So I went down and talked to them. They said, yeah, we'd like you to run the place. <laughs> okay. He said, what's it going to take for your work? I said, well, you know, I need a car, and I need, and I need this much money, and I need this kind of compensation, and on and on and on. And they all looked at each other and said, how's that sound to you, Jeff? Pretty good, Don. How about you, Bob? Uh, fine. Okay. I never even got to get to the point where I said, okay. You know, they offered me something. They just, I told them what I want, and they said, okay. And I never missed a day's work. And I like it that way. I'm probably not good not working. I don't know. Uh, but what has happened is I now run, I now work for a business that I used to own. That, if that doesn't sound familiar to you, I've not had thoughts about pouring whiskey in my milk. And if that does not ring a bell, you ought to be reading that book just a little more. And so I now work for a business I used to own, and I could not be happier. And I guess they're happy with me. Uh, they never come up and bug me. Uh, I have a boss, and I'm not used to having a boss, but AA taught me how to be a good boss. And I think, in, in turn, I learned how to be a good employee. And uh, they seem to like what I do there, and I seem to like it. I have all the, the uh, benefits of being a business owner, and I can walk away anytime I want. I like that. I may never walk away, but I like knowing that I can just go, screw you, I'm leaving. You know, I just, I like that. And uh, I'll tell you what I think about it. You know, I'm, it's possible that I may lose my house. And if it wasn't for AA, I'd have never had a house. They wouldn't give a house to a guy like me. When I found that house, I took it to everybody I knew in AA, and I took the contract in. I went to them. I said, I want to live in Cold Spring, Kentucky. You know, I want to have a house. I got $2,000. You know, like, you know how you do? You give them all this shit because you know they're going to look at you and go, get out of here. Somebody in there with some real money. And I told them all that, and they said, Oh, we got, he said, I got the house. And I wound up getting the house. And we have lived in that house, uh, I don't know, six years. And my wife and I, that house has become our home because of nothing more than we have been able to share the gift that AA gave us, that home, with you all. All the people I sponsor have been there, and they come over when they want. We have Christmas parties every year. And I don't know how we get 250 drunks in a three-bedroom, bi-level house, but by God, we do it somehow. And uh, I, I'll tell you, in all these things, these bad things that happen, here's what goes through my mind. With the dog, I think, I don't think it's a shame he's gone. He was sick. He lived real good. We got him on some medication. The last six months of his life, he was a go-getter. And while we were on vacation, he died. And I think he probably would have liked it that way. He probably would have liked knowing that we didn't have to be there and we didn't have to find him. When we got home, he was buried. It was all taken care of. I thought, what a gift. I would have hated to walk in and find him laying on and head to bury myself. I hate touching dead things, and I, I think, God, thank you for not allowing me to have to do that. And I know that it would have really bothered my wife to find that. I think, I don't think, geez, I, I'm going to miss him. I think he probably went when he had to. And I look back, and I think, God, thank you for allowing him to live in our life for the years that he did. And I think that about the business. I think, well, the business is gone. I've had a hell of a ride. I'm 34 years old. 40, 34 years old. And uh, I have been all around the world several times. For a guy like me, it just seems impossible. And when my sponsor died, I never thought, geez, I need it more. I wasn't ready yet. I guess I was ready. Because uh, I, I, I really never grieved over that. What kept going through my mind is, God, thank you for the five years that you allowed me to be around a person like that. I hope that I have learned my lessons well. Thank you for allowing me that when I had the opportunity to spend time with the people that I love, that I have, I have done it almost every time. For the last seven years, I've gone down to my mom's every Tuesday night. Hated it first, but I love it now. And I think, you know, if anything should happen to her, I want to be able to say... Jeez, I'm glad I took advantage of every opportunity I got. 
And if our home goes, and uh, I just think, if God deems necessary that we lose our home, He has something better in store. We're not going to a worse place. In AA, my life has always gotten better. And by watching you, I know that that's guaranteed and my life will always get better. And I look at that and I think, you know, I'm having the time of my life. And it's all because I got so much desperation in my life that I came to you all. You took me by the hand. You showed me what to do. You loved me until I could love myself. And you put me into the greatest group of people in the world. And tomorrow I'm leaving at noon. I'm going to the Bahamas with my mom, with my brother, with my stepsister. And there's about ten of us going. And I really didn't want to leave this conference because I want to hear Ken talk tomorrow night. And a thought came to me, and I talked to my sponsor about it. And I thought, if something should happen, I don't want to miss any opportunities to be with the people that I love. And so I decided to go. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I know that for me, that everything that I have ever been that's been worthwhile and everything that I will ever be will be because of Alcoholics Anonymous. If it wasn't for people like you in places like this, I could have missed it all. God love you. Thanks. Thank you, boss. Um, I'm sure Steve will be around after the meeting. So will his wife. Um, if you help me close this with the Lord's Prayer.